All right, everybody give uh, Kevin a hand. So I, I had an experience yesterday I've never had before. I had someone that tried to give me a piece of uh, certified mail. Who knows what certified mail is? Ron, you're a server. Your process service is your job. Um, it means someone wants to get something really important to you, and they need uh, legal proof that you actually got that thing, right? So I got really excited. Um, I actually wasn't home to receive this piece of mail. They left me a notice and said, you have to go to the post office to pick this up. Uh, so this was really exciting. This could be a number of things, right? This could be someone trying to give me money. Uh, this could be someone trying to sue me. Uh, I thought I had some real excitement, and I, I got to the post office yesterday, and uh, well, I found out it was an eviction notice from my apartment complex, because uh, I forgot to pay the rent. It wasn't you. It wasn't Ron. And so they said, hey, Kevin, if you don't pay us in five days, we're going to have to uh, terminate this lease, and you're going to have to leave here forever. Uh, and of course, I paid the rent, and uh, it's, all, it's all good now, but um, what's that about? It's the 7th of February before I'm remembering to pay the rent, and it's not like I don't have the money or the means to do that, um, but it's because I was focused on something else. I was focused on, I guess, my job. I was focused on the Super Bowl, um, and so I think, if anything, other than a way to disarm me and, and disqualify myself as qualified to talk to you guys, uh, that serves as a means of kind of talking about we, it really matters what we pay attention to. And so in the end of life, uh, when our family members are dying and when we are dying, we're going to miss a whole lot of things that are going on around us, things that are really important. And so I think it's um, helpful to pay attention to what matters. Um, I got started in hospice about seven years ago. I was working at the Olive Garden and a woman named Peggy came up to me, uh, or I was serving her. And uh, I said, what do you do? She says, well, my job is to uh, find people who want to go and sit with the dying and help them by reading to them or singing songs with them or just sitting with them. And I, I was really compelled by that. I'm not certain why, but I said, okay, I would really like to do that. So I signed up and uh, I became a volunteer. I was a really bad volunteer. Uh, it was really, really hard. Uh, I, I think I got into it uh, idealistically thinking, this is, wow, what a great way to uh, to get involved with people who are vulnerable and I can sit with them and I maybe I'll really bring them something. Um, and maybe I did. Um, but what I found instead was that, uh, man, it's really hard to sit with someone who whose mind doesn't work anymore and who can't process language and who can't speak to you. Uh, you're not having a conversation at that point. You're sitting there watching them drool and trying to convince yourself that there's something powerful about your presence. Um, oh, that's me. I didn't even know that. Um, <laughs> that, like, it's more important sometimes that words are not said in human interactions. Uh, so I think back to a couple of the first people that I had a chance to interact with, Everett. Uh, he actually could speak, and so we'd sit there. He was very angry about his life and his death, and um, he apparently was very closed off to a lot of people. And I would go in there, and the room all, always smelled uh, really foul, and he, he was rather overweight, and he just kind of sat in his room and kind of snarled most of the time. Uh, but I guess after like two or three times of going, he told me a little bit about his life, which was really sad. He told me about some daughters that he was estranged from and how things didn't end well with his wife and, and how that was really painful for him. 
And I reported this back to um, the hospice, and they were blown away. They said, we can't get anything out of this guy, and this is really helpful information for us to now go and maybe better tailor our care to him. Um, so maybe that was helpful. Um, I think of a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Ricardo. He lived at home with his daughter and his wife, um, and uh, Ricardo was in his early 80s, and he had dementia, the type of dementia maybe you've seen where he, he couldn't speak anymore. Uh, all we could do was we could toss a ball to each other, and then we could like look deeply into each other's eyes. Um, but what was the story that was told over and over again when I was there was told by his daughter, and that was what an amazing man this one uh, was. He he raised four daughters. He came to America as a first generation uh, U.S. citizen. He worked really really hard, and he gave all his four daughters college educations. And now they all have families, and he could fix anything with his hands. Um, and, and so he was obviously this really strong and really gentle patriarch of the family who now was like decreased to this man who soiled himself and couldn't really recognize much of anything. And it was really like, what do you do with that? How, how am I able to help in that situation? I'm not certain. I, I hope that I think maybe I helped alleviate some of the daughters, uh, maybe helped lift the load a little bit with her. Um, Irene was a woman who I spent probably the most time with as a volunteer. She was 97. She wasn't sure why she was here. She kept looking me in the eyes and saying, what is this? Why, why am I here anymore? My husband died 18 years ago. What? I, she was in good health. She's actually, she was on hospice for something you're not even allowed to be on hospice for anymore, something called failure to thrive. Uh, so she didn't even really qualify necessarily, but yet her story went on and on, and, and she wasn't sure why. I hope, I mean, she said she seemed to enjoy our visits together. Um, so, and, and I think she might have actually enjoyed them. So, so what, are, what is this all about? Well, I, I think what makes any of this interesting is these people and their stories. And this is all, life is this one long story and death is, I guess, the end of that story. And uh, a book called On Death and Dying, on Death and Dying, which is written by, it's back there, by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. It's kind of the tour de force of what goes on uh, around the dying process. She said something uh, interesting to me. She said, it is inconceivable for our unconscious to imagine an actual ending of our life here on earth. So we, we're going through this story and we're telling our own story and it's being told to us. But how do we conceive of it ending? I mean, that's like, that's really hard. And I think if you're reading the book carefully of your own life, you're going to see some foreshadowing and you're going to understand that like maybe actually my character is going to get written off the show here pretty soon. And uh, it takes a lot of courage and nobility to see, to read those signs and to keep reading to the end and say, okay, well, I'm not writing this story ultimately. There's a much bigger story that's happening. And uh, I, I guess my character is, is going to be done. And so reading that to the end and reading that uh, with grace and nobility um, requires a lot of courage. Uh, a helpful thing for us in hospice care is viewing what we're doing with the patient as a sort of drama, but it's their drama. So if you picture a play, you've got the main character, that's probably the patient, and you've got the supporting cast, those are the family members, and they're going to surround that person, and they're going to go and tell a story, and there's going to be important exchange of dialogue between characters. And our role as the hospice team and as the uh, care providers is to 
do lights and sounds and be in the background and make sure they look good while they're doing it and really equipping them to go and do their story. I think it's important uh, that we not upstage them and that we not view that as our own story. Um, certainly that's, that's true as a hospice worker, but that's true for us when we enter in with our own families. And when I entered in as a volunteer, I think I wanted my story to have more significance than their story. And, and so it's, yeah, it's really, it's really helpful to think of things as other people being the protagonist and us being anywhere from a, a supporting character to someone in the audience who's not even a part of the production. Um, you know, this death, death and life thing's interesting. Steve Jobs said after he was found out to have uh, prostate cancer, uh, he said, death is very likely the single best invention of life, which doesn't quite make a lot of sense. And I'm not certain what he means, but I think part of it might be the fact that, well, this life's only good because it ends. If it went on forever, it wouldn't quite have the meaning that it does. And so there's something really powerful about this whole story because we know it's going to end, uh, and sometimes it's going to end tragically. So every story deserves an ending or a good ending. We, we'd like to think so. And I think uh, that's when we get to talking about what is a good death, uh, you know, being raised, watching Disney films. I think I, I thought that things have to have a happy ending. And we're not going to all have happy endings. Actually, all of us are going to have really tragic endings because every one of our stories is going to end with our death and the end of things. But I think we can still have good endings if if, if not happy endings. So I actually would be curious kind of to ask you guys, like, what do you think constitutes a good death? This is something that's talked about a lot in our community or in, in death and dying, but all we're trying to do in hospice is give you a good death. What are some things off the top of your head? Maybe you've thought about this that would constitute a good death. Jacob, the youngest man in the room, don't think about your own death. It's not happening for a while. Yeah, I think you've outlined probably the core thrust of what people think about. It's, it's uh, having positive religious connection with a higher being and then having had uh, good connections with your family and with the environment around you. Yes, Elliot. Painless death, that's, that's a huge thing too. We don't want to experience pain, Danielle. Dying in your sleep, that's huge. Everyone has this fantasy that they're going to die in their sleep. Like I see it in all the literature all the interviews, we're going to die in our sleep. Who here would like to die in their sleep? I mean, I would like to, everyone, let's die in our sleep. What's, what's interesting, surrounded by family, right? Well, you don't, want, you don't want to die in your sleep? Well, okay, so what's interesting is I think, I think uh, why a lot of people want to die in their sleep is because we don't want to be around when the story ends, like to face the end of our own tragedy, like, you know, count me out. You guys go ahead and turn off the lights, and I don't want to be there. Anything else on good deaths? Ron, what does that mean? Hmm. It's a celebration. Yeah, celebration of, you know, that I've made it this far. 
Mm. You're, yeah, right. Ron? Mm. Peter? He doesn't want anyone to have to find him. He doesn't want to be found dead. Uh, Peter? Satisfied. You left life satisfied. You ended well, Samantha? Corey? Not at home. See, that's an interesting thing. You don't want to die at home. A lot of people do want to die at home. Um, that's why, part, why, partly why hospice exists is because probably it's better to die not in a hospital, but uh, do we want to die in the actual place where our family members live and, and, and breathe and are going to have to live afterwards? It's not clear. Some people do and some people don't. Catherine? Dignity, it's, that's huge, yeah. Jess, uh, Jessica. Right after you die? Oh, wow, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that'd be... Mike? Right, instant death, you didn't, right, you didn't know about it. Ashton? Right, it had significance. It mattered. Oh, right. People are sure that you're dead. One of the things I reflect on... Yeah, uh, Nikki. Hmm. And this is what we see. People are... People don't want to leave because they don't know. And you actually, you'll never know that your family's going to be okay. But so often we surround our loved ones in the deathbed scene and we say, mom, it's okay to go. Like you can really go. And she's, she knows you're there. Maybe she, her eyes aren't open and she's going, I can't leave you guys yet. I don't want to leave this story. This story has been really good. Um, one of the things selfishly, when I think seriously over the last five to six years, like, why would I have a child? I don't have a child currently. Maybe I will someday, but like, a big strong reason that I would want to procreate is because my ending is going to be better because of it, I think. If I raise that child in a pretty good way, they might go on and have children as well, maybe great-grandchildren. And my death and the end of my life is going to be something that mattered to people, and I'm going to be much more well-supported in that process. I don't know that it's a good reason to have kids, but it's something that comes to mind. (laughs) Seems pretty selfish. Ron? Death is always going to be painful. I don't know if that's true. I, we'd have to run some studies on that. But um, I might even be out of time, and I haven't talked about like one-tenth. Does anybody know? Okay, all right. I'm going to keep going here a little bit. Uh, a lot of research on, okay, some interesting things about what it is that matters to people, uh, what, it, what a good death is to actual patients who are dying and they interviewed three groups. They interviewed patients, they interviewed the family, and then they interviewed healthcare providers. And they found a couple of interesting things. One of the things is that family think that their role is much more important than the patient actually does. Um, so family says, yeah, I'm going to rate it. It's called family relationships, much higher than the patient who says, yeah, like that's important, but it's not quite important, as important as you family think it might be. The opposite was true with healthcare providers. So healthcare providers kind of said, actually, I don't think my role here really matters. And they sort of minimize themselves. Well, the family and the patient actually said, no, like we want to have good relationships with you towards the end. And so 
that's kind of interesting. Um, patients rate their desire for religious experience as much, much higher than uh, what the family members and the healthcare providers would have thought them to be. They've done a lot of studies where they um, take patients who are sick and dying and they try to find their well counterparts, meaning people who are in a similar boat but aren't sick, and the people who are sick just across the board uh, are more religious, have more interest in religion. Uh, that makes sense, I suppose, as you come to the end. You want to try to work out what might be next. Um, talking a little bit about then hospice care. What is hospice care? Well, in a nutshell, it's a, an outpatient, a primarily outpatient service um, that is going to go into your home, wherever that is, if it's a private residence with family or if it's an assisted living home, and we're going to provide hospice care for you in that home. We're going to bring nurses, we're going to bring chaplains, we're going to bring social workers, nursing aides, and we are going to bring you medications, which are going to help alleviate your pain. And we are going to, yeah, the good stuff. Um, we're going to do that for you as really as long as it takes for you to die. Uh, about 10% of hospice patients stay on hospice for more than a year, which is an interesting thing. There's a whole other talk about the fact that so much like in Tucson, there's 20, 22 hospices and all, but two of them are for-profit institutions that make, like we make a lot of money, five minutes, I'm counting them. Um, and so what does that do for care? Well, it does a lot of interesting things for care. Uh, nonprofits are much more interested in taking on more challenging patients, patients that are going to incur higher costs to them, pa patients who maybe have cancer or more uh, complex diagnoses, whereas for-profit institutions, uh, we want to take on people with dementia, things where someone could come on to service and last for a long time because we get paid the same amount of money whether you're on service with us for a couple of weeks or a couple of years. Um, and so I'm not certain what really is important to highlight here in these last five minutes. Uh, an interesting thing about vigiling. Who, who has vigiled with a dying loved one? Karen, yeah, what does that mean, basically? Wow. So vigiling basically is... Uh, sitting with that person as they're uh, dying. Maybe it's in those last hours or days, even weeks sometime, because our job as a hospice is to help identify, hey, it looks like if things kind of progress as they have been, you have about two weeks left and, and maybe a couple of days. And so we have this real strong push in this sense in hospice care that we should vigil with people because why? Because no one should die alone. But I think if you think about that one step further, everybody dies alone. Like that journey into whatever's after someone could be there with you while you leave but you are the only one leaving unless you die in an accident and several people die that's the only exception i can think of for the most part you're going to be going off into the distance by yourself and so we've heard from i've heard from patients who say i don't want anyone there i don't want my family there when this horrible embarrassing things happening where if you've seen people die like they're pulling their clothes off and they're agitated and so maybe it's always not the best thing to, to vigil with people and be there. It oftentimes is, but it's not clear 100%. Um, a study that I think is interesting about death anxiety um, talks about religiosity. So um, his name is Herman Feifel, and in the 50s he started doing a lot of research on death anxiety and what do people think about death and how does that affect like how they are going to die. And so he studied religiosity as a factor. And he didn't find much because he didn't really control for a lot of variables in his early, the early goings of his studies. 
So we found things that said, oh yeah, religious people have way more death anxiety. No, religious people have way less death anxiety. So I don't know that that was terribly helpful, but it set the groundwork for some more interesting studies that came around later. One in um, 1990, which then separated out, well, what type of religiosity? Like, what do we mean when we say religiosity? And they basically categorized it into two camps, extrinsic and intrinsic religiosity. And if you have extrinsic religiosity, basically it means like you could, you could think of it as maybe you're going through the motions a little bit. It, religion takes on a utilitarian view. If you have intrinsic religiosity, it's something that actually is central to your life and you shape your life around it. And they found that people with the intrinsic religiosity had much lower death anxiety near the end and people with extrinsic actually were worse off. Um, another study that was done a little, a little later, or actually a little earlier in 1984, uh, put it in different, more helpful words. Um, she said, uh, he, it's, the study found that those who were moderately religious had greater death anxiety than both the believers and the non-believers. Like, don't be lukewarm in this one. If, you, if, you have an, if you're going to make an ideological commitment, uh, make it. But if you're in the middle and you're dying, like, you're not sure, like, that's going to be a little bit of hell for you. Um, well, yeah, that's not intended, Well, <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Um, okay, I will wrap up with this. Um, I, it turns out I wrote like 90 minutes of material here, so. Hospice is really cool because it's a place where we see grace. Um, I think of like my friend Don who lived in Green Valley, and he was a, a chain smoker for life, and he had lung cancer. And we didn't ever, like, talk to him about, like, hey, man, like, you know, like, we'll help you, but did you have to go and smoke? Like, that was, of course, never considered. Like, we're, we were taking him where he was at and not holding his past against him. And we were entering in in this really amazing way where we were loving him and showing him mercy. Um, and we were listening. Like, we don't listen well, but we listen to the dying. Like, I, I work with these people, and, and I'm one of them where... We're always trying to get our own stories in, but then they'll come in and they'll say, man, I was really changed by what I heard from so-and-so. Like, so we listen in hospice care. Um, we, we're present with people. We don't, we don't ask questions. We're not holding your past against you. All these things. I, I think not really, I'm not really able to go into it fully, but I just want to give you a sense that hospice is a place where, like, where Jesus really exists and where mercy comes in and and I would put to you, like, it doesn't have to just be in hospice care. Uh, I'd like f- to practice ways where I am not um, holding others' pasts against them, where I'm listening well and where I'm present, and not just doing so uh, in the last couple of weeks of their life. So I think I'm out of time. <laughs>